0: with me to the book of Nehemiah as we resume our series, our preaching series in this uh, book. And we're this morning going to be focusing in chapter 6 and we're going to be doing the last bit of chapter 6 and the first few verses of chapter 7. So Nehemiah 6, chapter 6, verse 15 through to chapter 7, verse 4. This is the word of the Lord. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arar. And his son, Johanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. This is God's word. Well, if you were reading Nehemiah for the very first time, then you might expect that when you get to Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 15, that the end of the book is pretty, is pretty imminent. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because it says, So the wall was finished. On the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days... Of course, if we cast our minds back to Nehemiah chapter 1, we remember the terrible news that had come to Nehemiah there in, in Babylon. Remember, he was a cupbearer for the king. He was in the, uh, the Babylonian king's uh, service there, Artaxerxes. And uh, he, was, uh, you know, he received his brother Hanani who came to him with this terrible news that Jerusalem and its walls and gates had been broken down. And as a consequence the people in the city were doing it incredibly tough. But not only that, that they were basically held in scorn and derision by the surrounding nations. These people kind of looked down upon them. Of course, this caused Nehemiah a great deal of, of heartache because, of course, this was God's city. And these were God's people. And so after much prayer, Nehemiah formulated a plan that he would go and he would ask the king to give him permission and materials to go back to Jerusalem and repair the walls and the gates. Of course, Nehemiah you know, had a heart for, not only for God, but for his people and for his country. And so he uh, saw this, this, you know, this state of what was going on and he wanted to be used by God to be able to do something about the, the, uh, the, the condition of the city and the people at that stage. Of course, we read that you know the king gave permission, sent Nehemiah back, and Nehemiah goes and he does a bit of a survey around, and he gets the people together and encourages them into into this task of rebuilding the walls and the gates, reminding them that the that their God is with them in this particular uh, in this particular task. And so, when we come to this passage this morning here in Nehemiah six at the end of the chapter, it would seem to indicate to us that mission's accomplished, wouldn't it? that the mission is accomplished, that, yes, the walls have been rebuilt, the gates are now back in place. End of story. But, of course, we're only halfway through the book because if you actually flip over a few pages, you see that Nehemiah goes right the way through to chapter 13, which would indicate to me then, and I hope it points to all of us, The fact that there is more at play here in this particular account than just an engineering project, than just a rebuilding of the city walls and gates of Jerusalem. Yes, under Nehemiah's leadership, the wall was rebuilt and the gates were restored. But Nehemiah's vision was for a much grander thing than just that. For his goal was to see more than just a city restored, it was indeed to see the glory of God restored in that city and the glory of God reflected in the lives of God's people there in that place. Of course, the walls and the gates of the city would certainly give the people a secure place to dwell, but their purpose in life was to worship God and be a witness for him to the surrounding nations. To show them that God is indeed the one true God. That he is indeed the real God. And that he alone is worthy of their worship and their allegiance. Of course, this witness, we see an element of this in verses 15 to 16 of our passage this morning. Of course, all through the rebuilding process, the people of God had encountered fierce opposition from the surrounding peoples under the leadership of this group of guys called Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem. We see those spoken of regularly through this book. In fact, these people and the the forces that were behind them, they were very formidable and powerful enemies. And Nehemiah and the Jewish people had been the target of ridicule, they'd been the target of slander, of innuendo, of threats to physical injury and even to death. But of course, it wasn't just these outside pressures either on the people as they rebuilt the walls. They had internal problems as well. We saw that in chapter five, where you know there was you know, disagreements breaking out amongst the people because some were looking, getting seemed to be getting favored more than others. Of course, we see through this book that Satan is attacking on all fronts here in this, in this place. But through all of this, Nehemiah has urged the people to stick to the task and to remember that God was with them and that God would not fail them and that their ultimate goal was to live for God and to please him above all else. And so amidst all of these overwhelming type odds, we see that we're told here that the people finished the wall in a remarkable 52 days. I mean, this is an incredible achievement. This is, this is, you know, like you look at the building projects around us. I mean, look at the Gateway Arterial Road across, you know, just down here at Boundle. How many years has it taken them to build things like that? You know, how 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 many how much time does it take them just to even put up a building these days or build a house? Here is this whole wall around the city of Jerusalem completely rebuilt in 52 days. And no one could have conceived that this task would have been accomplished in such a short time, and especially in the face of the incredible and intense opposition that Nehemiah and the people were facing. And because the war was finished in such a remarkable time, in such a short time, we're told that uh, the enemies. of uh, of Nehemiah and the people, these people like Sanballat and uh, and Tobiah and Geshem and those supporting them, they they, they had become afraid and had lost their self-confidence. Look at verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, that is the rebuilding of the wall, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. In other words, their self-confidence was completely undermined. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished With the help of our God, see they realised that the only thing that they could put this incredible achievement down to was not the skill of the people, not the fact that they had the you know the most skilled people going, not the fact that they had the biggest workforce going, but the fact that God had indeed been on the side of His people and had helped them achieve this particular goal. There was no other explanation. If there had been any other explanation, we would have read about it here in this passage. But there is no other explanation. The people themselves, the enemies of the people of Israel, the godless people around about them, saw that God in- indeed had helped them to rebuild this wall. What an incredible testimony to the greatness and glory of God. Hey, An amazing testimony. As we reflect on this, I think it raises an important issue for us as God's people today. You know, what if we as North Pine Baptist Church were doing things in such a way that our local community around us looked at us and said, hey, you know that church opposite Undurba School there? You know that one that's sort of tucked in, tucked in away from the road, that, that place? Their God is real. Their God is Powerful. Wouldn't that be a remarkable thing for the people around about us to actually say that about us as the people of God here in this place? And when it comes to our witness for God to the surrounding world, what evidences are there in the lives, in our lives, of God's power at work? What are the things that we are attempting or doing that point to the fact that God is indeed real, that leaves people, including us, with no other explanation than to say it must be God. There is no other explanation. It can only be because God is real and their God is with them. You know, as you look at the scriptures, we see countless times of people who accomplished amazing things not because of their own strength and abilities but because God was with them and they had a confidence and a trust in God if you go back into the Old Testament you'll read accounts for instance of Gideon who defeated the Midianites with just 300 men this Midianite army, which we're told that you know, as, as Gideon and, and the men looked down acro- upon the army encampment, they saw that they were as vast as, as, you know, as the, the sand on the seashore. This amazing, incredible sized army that looked impossible to defeat. And yet God used Gideon and just 300 men to rout that army. And what about David and Goliath? This huge, nine-foot-tall, you know, soldier. This this incredible, for, forbidding, imposing kind of a of a man who stood there and taunted the whole armies of Israel, and who had had all of the armies basically cowering in fear at his presence and at his stature. And yet, David, the smallest of them all, you know, went out there with no armor, but just armed with a sling and five smooth stones, and struck that giant down and cut his head off there are no other explanation apart from the fact that god was indeed with his people and it was only god's power at work that was able to do that and of course all through the book of acts we see the disciples of jesus themselves accomplishing remarkable things only because the power of god was with them they weren't able to do it in their own strength You know, when when Peter and James and John were before the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish ruling council, and they gave this incredible, powerful testimony for Jesus, and with great boldness and courage. And at the end of that, the Jewish leaders got together and they they took note of what they said, not because of their great oratory skills and that sort of thing, but the thing that they noticed, these men had been with Jesus. Is that a kind of testimony that people can say about us? That that person, that Jesus is real in their lives, that the power of Jesus is so evident in that person's life. Because realistically, folks, that's the way it should be as the people of God, isn't it? Isn't it really? We should be known for these things. All through this series we've been continually referring to Psalm 127 and verse 1 where it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And what we see there is that nothing of any spiritual or eternal significance happens unless it derives from God. Jesus says something similar in John 15 5 where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Great reminder of that over here on the notice board now, with our missions committee been at work hard, you know, hard at work in in, in setting up that beautiful display. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Folks, are the things that we are doing in our lives today, are they indeed those things which are deriving indeed from the work of God in our lives? Or are we just relying on our own abilities and our own resources, on our own skills to get things done? You know, my greatest fear for us as a church is that we become so accomplished, so skilled, so good at doing stuff, at doing ministry, that we don't need God. When we put on our Sunday morning services we've got some skilled musicians we've got lots of people who are involved in all kinds of different you know ways of actually you know making sure my Sunday mornings happen our kids own teachers and leaders and all those sorts of people people at the door people who do morning tea people who can who can can, can prepare communion all these things but are we doing them in our own strength or are we doing them in the Lord's strength? Before you come to church on a Sunday, do you pray to God and say, Lord, what is it that you want from me today? How can I be of service to you today amongst your people? How can I come, Lord, today prepared to worship you and to be used by you in this place? I'm reading a lovely little book at the moment. It's only a very, very thin book. But it talks about, you know, what to do before I come to church on a Sunday. And in that, it actually talks about a number of things. But one of the things it talks about is that, you know, before we come to church on Sunday, do we pray asking God, Lord, who is it you want me to sit next to today in order to encourage them in their faith? Wow, that's a pretty difficult prayer for Baptists because we like to sit in the same seats every Sunday. (laughs) Jeez, well, that's a terrifying kind of a prayer. <laughs> but if we belong to God, and if we're here for the building up of his body, and to see his name glorified and to be used by him, then isn't that just a normal prayer to pray before we come to church? Seems logical, doesn't it? Hmm, Something to think about. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. If we're not relying on Him, if we're not dependent upon Him, if we're not available for Him to use, and if we're just if we're just going about our stuff just in our own strength and our own abilities, it will have no eternal significance. As Jesus says, when it comes to that last day and all our deeds are weighed up on the scales, those kind of deeds will be burned away like wood, hay, and stubble. I probably one of the most powerful witnesses that we can have for God. And to see God's power displayed in us is in the way we show his love to one another. That we love each other and those around us in a way that is far more attractive and far more real than anything that this world has to offer. That our community, the community of believers here in North Pine, is a place where people see true grace and forgiveness and patience and kindness practiced. Where we speak the truth in love to one another, but where we don't seek to put others down, but instead to lift them up. Where we're willing to go out of our way to serve one another and to humble ourselves, and yes, even to love our enemies, even love those people who might we find prick we might find as prickly people. What did Jesus say to his disciples in John 13, 34 to 35? He says a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by your love, will all people know that you are my disciples. He said this, of course, after he had washed their feet, after he had humbled himself, and, of course, just before he would go to the cross to die as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. It's one thing to be nice to one another. It's not one thing to be kind of cordial to one another, that sort of thing. And I'm not talking about the drink. It's, not, you know, it's, it's, it's good to, you know, to sort of kind of just you know, nod and shake one another's hands and that sort of thing, but that's not what we're talking about in terms of love, Lord, out here, folks... Well, the, the kind of love that Jesus is talking about here is a kind of love that actually goes out of its way to serve with sacrifice. The kind of love that goes out of its way to say, you know what, you are precious in God's sight and therefore you are precious in my sight. It's the kind of love that actually gets people to move to get to draw alongside a person. Particularly it may be a person who you might not ordinarily draw alongside. And say to them, I'm praying for you. How can I pray for you better? It's the kind of love that draws alongside others and says, you know what, we're in this together. And yes, although I, you know, your failings and your sin you know, may, be, may be very apparent, I'm not going to condemn you for that because Jesus doesn't. And instead, I want to help you. And will you help me? Because these are, these are my weak areas. These are my areas of sin. Scripture tells us, confess your sins to one another. Now, that doesn't mean that we get up you know, every week and, you know, and, and, and do that you know, in, a, in a way in which you know, just shouts it out, but, 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 get, you, know, you, but you, you, you get in those close, intimate conversations with people and you be real with one another and vulnerable with one another because we're too good at putting up the facades. We're too good at putting on the faces and saying, you know what, I'm good, I've got this. Well, I've got news flash for all of you, none of us have got it. None of us are good. We're all struggling. We're all looking like the ducks on the water, that on the water it looks all smooth and lovely, but underwater the feet are going like this. We're all those people. So let's be real about it and let's get alongside one another and show that kind of love and that kind of grace towards one another because that's the kind of love and grace that is going to display the power of God in a way that this world has never ever experienced and cannot experience apart from the people of God. Where God is at work in them. Of course, another way God's power is shown is in our, li- in our lives is indeed through our weaknesses. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 to 10, says... Paul asking, you know, he's got this thorn in the flesh and he asking God to remove it. Three times he prayed, Lord, take this from me. But, Lord, the, but God's answer to Paul was this, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect, complete, is glorified in your weakness. And so Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses. I'm content to suffer insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities because when I am weak, then I am strong. Not strong in myself, but strong in the Lord. The things we tend to boast about most readily are not our weaknesses, but our achievements and our strengths. We need to be more like the Apostle Paul and gladly boast of our weaknesses so that we might experience the power of Christ resting upon us. Well, this passage... Certainly speaks about how our lives can bring glory to God and testify to his reality and power, but it also points out how our witnesses, our, how, our, our witness for God can also be undermined. <clears throat> and in the following verses we'll see we'll see two specific ways in which this can happen. We'll see it through compromise in verses seventeen through to nineteen, and we'll see it through complacency in the opening verses of chapter seven. <clears throat> so let's just briefly uh, look at these together, shall we? Let's look first at compromise. See, all through this book, we've seen that wherever the people of God are at work, those who seek to undermine it and destroy it are not far away. And here in verse 19, we read that the nobles of Judah... Sorry, 17 to 19, we see that the nobles of Judah had been secretly betraying Nehemiah behind his back. It says this, Moreover, in those days the days as the wall is being being worked on and brought to completion, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them. In other words, there's this correspondence that's taking place. And many in Judah were bound by oath to, to Tobiah because he was the son-in-law. So he, was, you know, he was, uh, certainly had Jewish um, connections and Jewish relatives and they felt bound by oath to him in, in, in that way. But as they, you know, as they kind of had this this, uh, connection with Tobiah, it says they spoke in verse 19 of his good deeds in my presence, that is in Nehemiah's presence, but also reported my words to him. In other words, they were basically feeding Tobiah information about what Nehemiah and Nehemiah's plans and that sort of thing. And Tobiah sent letters to make Nehemiah afraid. Tobiah was indeed the enemy of Nehemiah of the people and therefore he was an enemy of God. These people had believed the lies of Tobiah and they'd taken sides with him over Nehemiah and their fellow Jews. And what we see here is that they formed this kind of alliance with Tobiah, an unholy alliance. And we, the danger for us as followers of Jesus today, is for us as well to form these unholy alliances with the world and to believe the lies of the world. Of course, that can take many forms and we haven't got time to go into those this morning. But wherever we choose to allow things other than the word of God to direct our thinking and our actions, then we end up compromising and undermining God's purposes for us and for his world. Of course, a key area of this is in the area of our relationships, the relationships we develop. See, as we said, Tobiah was related to some of these people by marriage and it appears that this connection connection had a significant influence on them. And so we need to ask ourselves this, are the people who we have around us, the people we're allowing to speak into our lives and to influence us in our lives, in our decisions, in our actions, are these people helping me to honour God and be more faithful to God and his ways or are they not? are in fact, are they having the opposite effect? It's interesting that Jesus' words to his disciples in, John, in Luke 14, 26, he says this, If anyone comes to me, in other words, if anyone chooses to, to trust in me, to believe in me, to be my follower, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life... He cannot be my disciple. They're pretty powerful words, aren't they? In fact, they're really controversial words because, you know, Jesus... But but let me say that Jesus is not saying literally hate our families, but what Jesus is saying here is that unless you put me above everything else, including those family connections in your life, unless I come first in your life, then Jesus is saying you cannot be my disciple because your allegiances will be split. Compromise is, the, is, is one of the most fundamental dangers to us in our Christian lives and to be used by God for his glory. Are there people in our lives right now who we are allowing to have that kind of influence on us? The second area is complacency. We see that in verses one through to the, through the three of our, of uh, of, Isaiah, of uh, Nehemiah seven. Says, now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they're still on guard, let them shut and bar the gates, and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. In other words, Nehemiah says, Right, the wall's finished, guys. Incredible accomplishment in 52 days, but you know what? The job's not done. It's not over till it's over. And the job's not finished. Because Nehemiah said that this wasn't just about the war, but it's actually about us living for God, living for the glory of God as the people of God, and that is a lifelong thing. And in fact, Nehemiah is going to start you know, getting into that in the rest of this book. You know, we're at our most vulnerable, spiritually speaking, when we've just experienced a spiritual high point or victory in our lives. You know, Elijah in 1 Kings 18 there on Mount Carmel, he has this incredible showdown with the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets versus Elijah. And they build these these altars and and Elijah, you know, sort of challenges them to a a contest and says, you build an altar over here and I'll build one over here. And the, the God who sends fire down to consume the sacrifice, that's the one true God and that's the God we'll worship. And so the prophets of Baal built their altar, you know, put their sacrifices and everything on it and danced around and yelled and screamed and carried on and, you know, called down their gods and, you know, the power of their gods and that sort of stuff and nothing happened. And it went on for ages and ages and ages and still nothing happened. And then Elijah says, he says to his servants, bring water. And he put the sacrifice on the wood on the altar and he said, Now pour all this water over it. So they did that. And then he says, Right, now do it again. And they poured more water over it. And he says, That's great. Now do it again. And they poured even more water over it until the water was literally just dripping off this sacrifice. And the trench around around the altar was all filled up with a flood of water. And then Elijah prayed. And then there was a little cloud that appeared. And then more clouds and then a storm. And a storm rolled in and all of a sudden lightning came down and consumed not just everything on the altar, but all the water and the altar itself. Everything was consumed by fire. And Elijah said, Now know that there is only one God and worship him and him alone. But you know what happened after that? The next chapter, the very next chapter, Elijah is running for his life and goes and hides in a cave. Peter, after he confesses Jesus as the son of God in Matthew 16, Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, because no man has revealed that to you. Only God, my father in heaven, could let you know that. Only only that could have been revealed to you by God. And then in the next breath almost, Peter is rebuked by Jesus for saying for being used by the devil. We're at our most vulnerable, spiritually speaking, when we experience this spiritual high point or victory. We need to be on our guard. And Nehemiah knew that the work had only just begun. And now it was time to put things in place to protect what the people had already achieved for God. Nehemiah selects, you know, his his brother Hananiah and Hananiah. Maybe Hananiah is a gifted administrator because he's a governor. But more than that, the most important thing for Nehemiah was that he was a faithful and God-fearing man. Nehemiah is saying here that, you know what, it's not just about skills and abilities, but it's more about the kind of person we are because God looks at the heart first Nehemiah says we need to put in place, you know, um, safeguards so that we make sure that we keep an eye out for the enemy so the enemy can't take us by surprise. And we need to ask ourselves, what things are we putting in place in our own lives that would help us remain faithful and diligent in our walks with the Lord? What boundaries are we seeking to put in place so that we can try to remain obedient to God and faithful to his word and to bring him glory? In fact, who are we allowing to speak into our lives and influence us for our spiritual well-beings? We need the Hananias and the Hananias in our lives. Have you got them? Do you have those people? You know, as I pointed on this particular passage this morning, Is just um, one, of, one thing that sort of really kind of stuck out to me was this. Nehemiah had this incredible spiritual posture, and that was a posture of humility before God. It was a posture of, of fearing God. You know, he was a God-fearing man. He was a man who, you know, that, that 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 he wanted to live his life completely for God, and he wanted to continually, you know, kind of grow closer towards God. And you know, folks. There, are in the in the spirit, in our spiritual lives, there are three postures we can have. We can have a posture like Nehemiah, which I put down. I uh, look at as a posture of incline or inclining. You know that that incline. It goes up. It's a trajectory of, of growth, of spiritual growth. And yes, you know, walking uphill can be hard and tough, but the benefits of walking uphill far outweigh the discomfort and the and and, and the hardship. Because of course, when you get to the hill, the, the, the view is always better, but it's the work that's actually gets you up the hill is beneficial for you as a person, isn't it? So we can either have a spiritual, spiritual trajectory I'll get my tongue around that in a minute a spiritual trajectory of growth, of incline, or we can have a spiritual posture of recline. Who's got a Jason Lazy boy chair or something similar in their homes? Come on, put your hands up. Yeah, there's a few of them, isn't there? How good is it to be able to collapse in that chair and sit down and pull the, pull the lever or pull the button or whatever and the feet flips up and it goes back in recline and you think, ah, oh, this is great. This is nice. What happens when you recline in your chair? For me, I go to sleep. Is your spiritual posture one of recline? Where you think, this is all right, I'm comfortable, this is good. But nothing's happening in that recline chair, is it? (laughs) Apart from the fact that eventually you're going to go to sleep. And that speaks of the third spiritual posture, decline. Downhill towards death. Death. Reclining always leads to declining. Inclining, reclining, declining. That's the only three spiritual postures there are, folks. And that's true of, the, of us as individuals, but it's also true of us as a church. It's also true of us as a church. What is your spiritual posture at present? The last verse here is quite telling. It says the city was wide and large but the people in it were few and no houses had been built. It's verse 4. Of course, this is a picture of a a wonderful big city but it's a derelict city. It's kind of like the bombed out cities we see on the TV news from places like the Middle East and, and those places. It's a place where there is little life. You know, in many ways, this can be a picture of the church today in the West, large in size, but small in spiritual life and vitality. And that life and vitality comes from the people, specifically people who are living for God and seeing his power at work in their lives. And so the lessons for us today are this, and in the days and weeks and months ahead, are we going to be willing to step out in faith into those God spaces beyond our own abilities, beyond our own skills, beyond our own strengths, to step out into those God spaces where if God doesn't show up, we're going to fall flat on our faces, Are we going to be willing to do that? Are we we going to be willing in our own lives to guard against compromise and complacency? That's the challenge. Because it is the people who are prepared to step out in those God spaces who are willing to guard against compromise and complacency in their lives. They're the people who are on the incline. If we're not, then we're either reclining and therefore on our way to declining. Where are you right now? Only you can answer that. So I'm going to come around the community table now. I'm going to invite the stewards to come forward. And here's an opportunity, folks, for us to be able to just come before God silently and quietly by ourselves, in our own little spaces, in our own minds and in our own hearts. And I want to encourage you this morning to be honest and real with yourself to allow yourself to hear what the Holy Spirit of God is wanting to say to you right now about how the Spirit of God actually might be challenging about what are some of those places that God actually wants you to step out of, out from those comfort zones and step into those places where God has to be the one who works or we will fall on our faces. Is God encouraging you to do those sorts of things? Or is there some, aspect, some area in your life that God is wanting you to step out of those comfort zones? Or maybe God is challenging you at the moment because you have compromised in some way in your spiritual life. When you are doing that right now and God is saying, you know what? You've got to stop that for your own good. Are there areas of compromise You need to bring those before God this morning and confess those and seek the forgiveness of God, knowing that Christ has paid for those sins and that his forgiveness is complete and full and he can cleanse you from all those sins. Are there areas of complacency in your lives right now where you're thinking, I'm in that recliner and gee, it's good, but God wants more from you? These are the things that God gives us opportunity now as we come around this table. And folks, these elements, they remind us afresh of the fact that God has always, right from the very beginning of history, he has always had a purpose for you in your life to bring you to this particular point today even just for him to say to you, you are my child and I want you to live for me and for my glory so that my power might be manifested through you and you might be a wonderful testimony and witness to all those around about you. God has brought you to this place and, and he's done it because of the sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God says, you know what, even if you have failed and you are failing in the midst of it right now, If you come to me, you can receive forgiveness and a whole fresh new start. That's the grace and the mercy of our God. And so we praise him and we thank him for that. So I invite you this morning to take of the bread, to eat of the bread, remembering the body of Christ given for you as a sacrifice for your sin. But also think of it as as the life that Jesus wants to impart in you so that you can live for his glory. Eat of the bread. But hold the cup that we might drink together this morning in fellowship, being reminded afresh that we're not isolated islands, we're not individuals, but God has called us collectively to live for him and for his glory and to to help each other in that. Amen? Amen? All right, we'll pass the elements out. Eat the bread, hold the cup.